Hello and welcome to this Endo Life episode 137. I'm Jessica Duffin, I'm an endo warrior, an endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves, you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's (laughs) the patch in a bath bomb. Um, So, you know, if you're on your period or if you're in pain, you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them. I know you can have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top which is um what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing so um i would love to do that but um i don't have a bath so i can't but if you have a bath um then you know i think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain so if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU, which is buonline.co.uk, and you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk, and they deliver worldwide. Okay, guys, so just to warn you, there's a lot of science in this episode, but it's really, really interesting, and I've tried to break it down to the best of my ability and I hope it is clear and succinct. If you need clarification on anything, obviously drop me an email. All the references are in the show notes. But I just ended up going down this really deep rabbit hole and it's taken me days to write this episode. I mean, every episode does take me a couple of days, but this has taken days and hours and hours of digging into the research. So I hope that you know, I've taken what is quite complicated research and I've simplified it in this and, um, you know, it saves you a lot of time and is really useful to you. But yeah, this episode, I did not expect it to to take as much time as it did and be so complex. So it's, it's such a fascinating subject. So I hope you find it interesting. So yeah, so recently I polled Instagram to find out how many of you were suffering with PMS on top of your endo symptoms. And the results were really staggering. Unfortunately, Instagram didn't keep the number of votes um, in the archive. I don't know why it did that because I can see the votes for some of them, but I can only see the percentage. So not not the amount of people who took part in the poll itself, but the percentage of people who did take part and who suffered with P- who suffered with PMS was 86%. And I know from past experience that the week leading up to your period and the week of your period can often be where endo, you know, really rears its head for a lot of us. So adding PMS symptoms as well is just, of course, not what we want. And I went on to poll your symptoms specifically, and there was not one symptom that fell beneath the 50% mark. I think I asked, I think I... There was like 10 symptoms that I asked you guys about. And most of these you came back with at, it came back at like 70 to 90% um, of you. So you guys are dealing with a lot of symptoms. 
And I was originally going to do one podcast episode dedicated to PMS and endo. But after I saw these stats, I just felt like it would really be too much to take on in one show. And that really some of these symptoms that you guys scored high on deserve much more attention. Um, And I guess judging by kind of the amount of research and information behind just this one subject of bloating, premenstrual bloating, demonstrates that you can't just do this in in one episode. So I'm going to do a couple of these. So today I'm talking about bloating before your period, why it happens. And then next week, I'm going to talk about some strategies to reduce it. I chose this one to start with because it was the highest score with 94% of you suffering with it. So let's dive in. Now, of course, when it comes to bloating, you know that I'm always going to talk about SIBO, which is small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And research estimates that up to 80% of people with endo also have SIBO, and that SIBO may even play a role in the development of endo. But today, I'm not going to talk about SIBO. If you have bloating all the time, or most of the time, I really do recommend that you also listen to my podcast episodes on SIBO, as that might be worsening the bloating you're getting around your period. But if bloating is just mainly occurring around your period, or it's at least worse around your period, then this is the episode for you. So other than SIBO and gut health infections or more serious gut health conditions, let's look at the two key causes of bloating around your period. Number one is hormonal imbalances, mainly estrogen excess or estrogen dominance and or low progesterone. So just to be clear, excess estrogen is a hormonal imbalance where we have too much estrogen in the body, whereas estrogen dominance is when our levels of estrogen dominate over progesterone. So in a normal healthy cycle, estrogen should be higher in the first half during the menstrual phase and the follicular phase. It actually starts off at its lowest point on day one of the cycle, but it will begin to build. After ovulation, progesterone is higher than estrogen, but what happens with estrogen dominance is that estrogen is higher than progesterone throughout the luteal phase, which is the second half of your cycle after ovulation. And that shouldn't be happening, right? Progesterone should be higher at that point. So this can occur in four ways. Progesterone is too low, but estrogen is normal. So naturally estrogen then dominates because the progesterone is too low. Progesterone is normal, but estrogen is in excess. So again, it's higher. Progesterone is low and estrogen is in excess. So you've kind of got the the worst of both scenarios there. Or progesterone is low and estrogen is also low, but progesterone is just even lower. Two of the most common symptoms of these hormonal imbalances are water retention and bloating. Why? Because progesterone and estrogen actually play a role in fluid regulation, fluid retention, and sodium retention in our body. And that's salt, by the way, sodium. There are actually estrogen receptors and progesterone receptors in parts of the body that affect fluid regulation, such as in the kidneys. And research has found that in healthy participants, when they've isolated progesterone and estrogen separately and administered them in normal doses, fluid regulation and sodium retention were acutely affected. So, for example, the hormone that triggers the kidneys to recirculate water back into the body rather than excreted in urine, known as arginine vasopressin, was higher. However, in normal healthy participants, which that's who took part in this study, the effects of these changes were minimal. So there wasn't much of a difference in water retention. Um, It wasn't dramatically 
increased even though this hormone was higher. But of course, we're then left to wonder what happens when hormone levels aren't normal and are in fact higher, like with estrogen. What happens in people who have endo and higher levels of estrogen, for example? So when they isolated normal levels of estrogen in these studies, they found that there was a small increase in water retention, which was because estrogen encouraged the kidneys to recirculate water rather than excreting it, right? So it you know, increased that arginine vasopressin, and then there was a little bit more water retention, but it wasn't dramatic. However, despite the higher levels in the hormone, the kidneys were not responding as expected, meaning there wasn't as much water retention as they thought there should have been given the high levels of arginine vasopressin. And this has left scientists wondering whether estrogen has the ability to make the kidneys less sensitive to that hormone. So basically, the effects aren't that dramatic and they're still trying to work out why, because given the findings, they should be. Now, sodium retention does increase with estrogen, And so scientists believe that the small change in water retention that they observed was really down to the higher levels of salt in the body rather than the higher levels of arginine vasopressin, which didn't seem to create a huge change in the kidney function. And higher sodium levels increases the amount of fluid that surrounds our cells. So that would explain why we feel extra puffy and swollen, right? And additionally, estrogen increases the amount of plasma in our body, which is a clear liquid that makes up the bulk of our blood. And this results in swelling in the body and alterations in where fluid is distributed. And progesterone has also been found to do the same thing, but this result hasn't been consistent across studies. So we're not 100% sure if it does. So if progesterone can increase swelling potentially, and very slightly in in healthy adults, and estrogen can increase it too, again slightly, then you can see why having a normal level of progesterone and higher levels of estrogen could result in excess swelling around the body, water retention, and ultimately bloating, right? Because progesterone in its normal levels is increasing swelling a little bit, and then estrogen at really high levels, or, you know, excess levels, is increasing it by quite a lot. So if we're able to bring our hormones into balance, we may see some normal small increases in swelling and bloating as we enter the second half of our cycle, especially if this research on progesterone increase in plasma fluid is accurate because progesterone is, you know, the lead hormone in the second half of our cycle. But we shouldn't be experiencing dramatic and noticeable swelling from this research, right? It's if, if our hormone levels are normal, then the changes shouldn't be that dramatic. So... This leads me to my next cause. Number two is your gut health. If your hormone levels are normal, your bloating is still happening and it's significant, then let's look at the gut health. If you listen to my podcast, you'll know already that gut health problems cause symptoms like bloating and especially problems like candida, SIBO and fungal overgrowth. They're notorious for bloating. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to link in my show notes. This episode is sponsored by my new free download, Natural Pain Relief Toolkit for Endometriosis. 
This four-page guide includes herbal remedies and teas that are in your cupboards already, safe pain relieving supplements, essential oils for self-massage, and much more. There's a method for everyone, whatever your taste and your budget. Some of the options literally range from 40p to £10, so there is a range of things to support you. And the chances are that you're going to have some of these in your house already. So I'm hoping that this is a really accessible toolkit for you to get started. You know how I work. I like to make changes from our foundations of health, you know, nutrition, lifestyle. It's not about slapping on a load of like pain relief and supplements um, and kind of masking the symptoms. But sometimes we need a bit of help to get out the pain so we can actually begin to make some changes and feel better. And these are the strategies that I use with my clients when they're stuck in in a rut. They don't have the energy Um, and they're having too much pain to actually be able to take the first step forward. So we just want to ease those symptoms, get them out of pain so we can begin this coaching journey together. So I'm hoping that if you're at this moment struggling to see the woods for the trees and get through some of your current pain, that these methods are going to help you. To get your copy, go to the link in my show notes or just go directly to my website and the link is on the homepage. Now, even if you don't have an infection or a parasite or one of these problems, general gut dysbiosis can cause bloating. And gut dysbiosis is when the bacteria that live in your gut become out of balance, and this imbalance creates an inflammatory environment, excess fermentation, which results in gas and bloating, and dysbiosis also causes symptoms like IBS. And these issues can be worsened by the changes that happen to the gut during the lead up to menstruation. When progesterone rises in the second phase of your menstrual cycle, it actually slows down digestion. And this is why you may experience constipation before your period or at least slower sluggish bowels. And this is because progesterone is a muscle relaxant. It actually helps to loosen muscles and ligaments during pregnancy to allow your pelvis to expand. So yes, naturally and normally, your bowel movements might be a little slower in the second half of your cycle, or you may just notice that your food doesn't seem to go down as quickly after a meal, creating some degree of bloating or fullness. But these changes shouldn't be to the point where you can hardly go to the toilet in the second half of your cycle, or that your bloating is painful, your belly is really extended so you look six months pregnant, or you can no longer wear the clothes you wear in the first of your first half of your cycle. Right? It's the same with your hormones, as I mentioned earlier, if your hormone levels are normal, you get, you might get a little bit of swelling, a little bit of bloating, but it shouldn't be significant. And it's the same here. If your gut health is normal, then you might get like a little bit of a slower bowel movement, but it shouldn't be significant. If it is significant, then we need to look at your gut. If you have dysbiosis or a condition like SIBO, you're going to be having more fermentation anyway, right? So that generally means you're going to be more bloated. Now, if we slow down the transit of food through your gut, of course, this then gives the bacteria and archaea, which are like bacteria, but they're just a different species, even more time to munch on your food, creating even more gas. Then, because you have slower peristalsis, which is the movement that pushes food and waste through your intestines, it's going to take gas longer to exit, right? Because progesterone has slowed all of that down. So essentially, you have more food and gas hanging around in your gut for longer. So it's no wonder that you're feeling bloated. And then on top of this, 
If you have gut dysbiosis, SIBO or another gut condition, your microbiome may have higher levels of an enzyme known as beta-glucuronidase. And this is an enzyme that helps to regulate estrogen by recirculating waste estrogen if needed, rather than allowing it to be excreted through through a bowel movement. So it basically takes estrogen and filters it back into the bloodstream. Researchers looking into the alterations of the gut microbiome and its connection to estrogen-dependent diseases actually hypothesize that people with endometriosis may have higher levels of beta-glucuronidase. And this is certainly the case that I see with many of my clients when I test them. In fact, another study, sadly on monkeys with endo, found significant dysbiosis, including low levels of lactobacillus, which is a bacteria that helps to keep beta-glucuronidase in check and at the right levels. And just to be clear, these monkeys weren't induced with endometriosis. They had endometriosis. And so what they were looking at is, well, is the fact that they have this high level of beta-glucuronidase what in part caused the endometriosis. So this of course means that the gut dysbiosis could be worsening any excess estrogen or estrogen dominance that you might have. And that can be in turn worsening your water retention and swelling, right? Because if you have high levels of beta-glucuronidase, that's going to be recirculating estrogen, that's going to be creating excess estrogen, and then that will be having an effect on your water retention. Another point to add here is that the same study on monkeys also found high levels of gram-negative bacteria in the microbiome. Gram-negative bacteria can be a disease, can be disease or illness causing, such as, for example, certain strains of E. coli, but there are also normal gram-negative bacteria found in our guts that don't cause disease, again, like certain strains of E. coli, but they have the potential to evolve and cause an illness. And what's really important here. Really, the key takeaway is that gram-negative bacteria, when they break down, they release parts of their cell walls called lipopolysaccharides, or LPS for short. You've probably heard me talk about them quite a bit already. Lipopolysaccharides trigger a huge inflammatory response from the immune system, and these monkeys were shown to have higher levels of intestinal inflammation, which would make total sense, right? Because they have higher levels of gram-negative bacteria. More recently, researchers found LPS in the pelvic cavity of people with endo, and it's believed that the LPS has been transferred from the gut through leaky gut, and it has also been found that LPS contributes to the inflammation and the disease growth of endo. But what's even more interesting is that recent research, though it was on a small study of 40 and it does have limitations, has found that gram-negative bacteria and LPS may actually increase in the bloodstream in the lead up to our periods. So they studied the immune responses to LPS throughout the cycle at four stages, day 7, day 14, day 21, and day 28. And they found peak levels during day 28, indicating that there were higher levels of LPS in the bloodstream around this period of time because there were higher levels of LPS antibodies. And antibodies are basically like little soldiers that have been designed specifically to attack LPS, right? The immune system makes them. They suspect that LPS and gram-negative bacteria actually increases in the blood due to translocation. So just to remind you, translocation is the movement, usually of bacteria, from the gut to outside of the gut. So like the movement of bacteria from the gut to the pelvic cavity, as what happens with endo. 
So they suspect that the LPS and gram-negative bacteria um, are increasing in the bloodstream from the gut due to translocation. And they believe that this could be due to changes in the gut wall caused by progesterone rising in the second half of our cycle. So essentially, progesterone is causing temporary leaky gut, or so they believe. And if you haven't listened to my previous episodes on leaky gut, your gut lining should have tiny, tiny, tiny gaps between the cells that are holding this gut lining together. And those tiny, tiny gaps are only big enough for nutrients to pass through into the bloodstream. But leaky gut occurs when those gaps start to widen and then bacteria can pass through, LPS can pass through, toxins, food particles can pass through um, and it causes an inflammatory reaction. And that's that's leaky gut. So they believe that progesterone is causing temporary leaky gut and that this in turn is creating an exaggerated inflammatory immune response because LPS and gram-negative bacteria are passing through. And of course, the first kind of inflammation is going to come from around the gut because this is where this is occurring. Now, prior to this study, much research has shown that the immune system is actually suppressed in the second half of the cycle. And the theory is that this is to support healthy implantation and fertilization of the egg without the risk of the immune system attacking it. And this occurs when progesterone rises following ovulation. So early to mid luteal phase, your inflammatory immune reaction should be somewhat dampened. However, as progesterone begins its decline ahead of your period, about 9 to 11 days after ovulation, inflammation returns as the immune system begins to return to its normal strength. And just to remind you, inflammation is a normal immune response. So when the immune system is responding properly, then you're going to have this normal inflammatory response to threats. And this correlates with the findings of the study on LPS immune reactions. The strongest reaction from the immune system comes at the end of the cycle, around day 28, and this would make sense given that the immune system is pretty much back to full strength by then. And they also show that day 14 has the lowest reaction to LPS, which would also make sense, of course, as this is roughly the time that ovulation occurs, and so this is the time that immune system is going to have been suppressed. Um, But just to be clear, Ovulation does vary from person to person and from month to month. So the idea that we all ovulate on day 14 or 15 is is actually a myth, by the way. So as the immune system is only suppressed between, say, day 14 and about day 25-ish, depending on how long your luteal phase is, if the LPS and bacteria were present all month around, right, in the bloodstream, if they were always present in the bloodstream, we should have seen a higher level of immune reaction on day seven when the immune system was still fully functioning. You know, ovulation hadn't occurred yet. So if those levels of LPS and gram-negative bacteria were still in the bloodstream, we should have seen higher antibodies at that point. But we, we didn't. The study didn't show that. The study, in fact, showed that the immune response was at its lowest here along with day 14. So around day seven, the immune response to LPS was low. So in this study, it was the antibodies to the LPS which were measured, not the LPS levels or the gram-negative bacteria. But what they've concluded from the rise in antibodies is that this indicates rise in LPS and gram-negative bacteria levels in the second half of the cycle. Because once once the LPS is present, the immune system will start making antibodies. And then there's this strong reaction towards the end of the cycle when the immune system returns to full functioning. 
Now, the limitation here is that we don't actually know for sure the levels of LPS or bacteria as the microbiome wasn't studied and there was no stool test taken. So we're simply going off the LPS antibodies in the blood. So I really hope that more research is done looking into this further and to see whether these findings are consistent. But if this research is correct and we're able to replicate it in future studies, then it would make sense that people with endo who have a higher load of gram-negative bacteria in their guts, as observed in these monkeys, and maybe, you know, may have even higher levels of gram-negative bacteria in the case of SIBO or some other pathogen, would have more LPS in their bloodstream in the second half of their cycle. So, you know, if you have endo, you have higher levels of gram-negative bacteria, and then maybe you also have SIBO and something else, then your levels, if if this is true, if your progesterone levels are expanding the holes in your gut lining, creating leaky gut, then you're going to be having more LPS and more bacteria leaking into the bloodstream in the second half of your cycle. And that's especially true because there's also the possibility possibility of leaky gut already having been present, which is often the case when we have dysbiosis or SIBO or another gut condition, they often lead to leaky gut. So progesterone is just expanding this these holes even further. So that's going to allow even more bacteria and toxins to travel through. And so if LPS and gram-negative bacteria are escaping in the luteal phase and are finding their way into the pelvic cavity, this could be contributing to swelling in the area thanks to an inflammatory immune reaction towards the end of the cycle. And as I mentioned earlier, there's already LPS in the pelvic cavity of people with endo. So if these findings turn out to be accurate and they can be replicated in future research, perhaps this could be this could explain why there's even more of an inflammatory reaction in the abdomen and pelvis of people with endo in the lead up to their period in contrast to the rest of the month and also in contrast to those who don't have endo. So, to wrap up, of course, endometriosis can cause some degree of swelling due to the inflammatory nature of the disease, right? So this could definitely be contributing. But the bulk of inflammation occurs at menstruation as the uterine lining sheds and prostaglandins and histamines are released, not beforehand. So this extensive swelling the week before or even two weeks before doesn't really correlate in my opinion. And so my belief is that the impact of this increased LPS in the bloodstream, the return of the immune system towards the end of the cycle, the presence of endo, gut dysbiosis, and maybe, you know, SIBO or something else, and hormonal imbalances are creating the perfect recipe for swelling and bloating ahead of your period. So now you've got some information on why it's happening Next week, I'm going to take you through some simple strategies for supporting the gut and balancing your hormones and some easy methods for quick bloating relief in the lead up to your period. Now, I know that was a lot to take in and I'm actually shocked that this episode is only 29 minutes long at the moment of recording um, because it has taken so long to write, but it's a lot of information. But the, the really the kind of top lines to take away is that if you have healthy levels of hormones and have a healthy gut, then the water retention and the bloating really shouldn't be that significant before your period. However, if you have excess estrogen or estrogen dominance and you have some gut dysbiosis, then it's likely that your hormone that your bloating is going to be worse. So we're going to do what we can 
to minimize the effects of these natural changes that happen in during the menstrual cycle in the lead up to your period. So next week, I'm going to take you through what you can do, some really simple strategies and some more long-term ones, and you can kind of pick what suits you the best. So I really hope that was informative and helpful. And yeah, let me know what you think. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. Music.